0: I'm Madeline Jane Albel, and this is Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy. This week, it's Diane Cannon, part two, leading into my discussion about the life and death of Rebecca Schaefer. Her last two film roles, The End of Innocence and Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, will be the focus. The 1990 film The End of Innocence was written and directed by Diane Cannon. The film stars Diane as Stephanie, a woman who is loosely based on her own life experiences, including her bout in a rehab-slash-mental institution. The younger version of Stephanie is played by Rebecca Schaefer. Rebecca was murdered by a fan shortly after this movie wrapped. Her murder is in large measure what led to California's and eventually the whole country's first stalking laws. Her death, along with a handful of other high profile celebrity deaths the decade prior, were and remained very impactful for women across the country. The end of innocence is no longer available. I don't know the story with the rights or why it's out of circulation, but I do know that Diane Cannon spent nearly $3 million of her own money to get it made. It's a great movie, and we are going to talk about it even though I was only able to view 59 minutes of the 103-minute runtime. I have a dim memory of seeing this movie on TV when I was a kid, probably within a few years of its release, but I don't actually remember the ending. Rather than guessing at it or neglecting the whole film, I'm going to talk about what I was able to rewatch. I'm going to spend longer on the synopsis, weaving in the scene breakdowns as we go, because I'm not just focused on the star, costume, or character. Diane was the writer and director, so all aspects of this film are of interest to me. If anyone does have access to the whole film, please get in touch with me via the podcast's Instagram page at Window Dressing Podcast. I will totally do a follow up to this episode if I have the opportunity to view the entire film. The coming of age story starts in childhood, where typical of many women's childhood, Stephanie is shamed for and encouraged to be a sexual being all at the same time. Next comes the wild cruelty of being a teenage girl. The beginnings of an eating disorder become apparent as Rebecca Schaefer's Stephanie starts stuffing her face at stressful moments in a uniquely feminine fashion that is defined as full of lusty bites and budding shame. She stuffs her bra in secret and examines herself in the mirror alone in her room in long intervals, aware of but unsure of what it means to become a woman. In this same vein, Stephanie goes shoe shopping with her mother where she finds the perfect pink pumps to wear to prom. Her mom buys them for her in a true moment of mother-daughter bonding, weighted with womanly accessories. After prom, while wearing her perfect petal pink pumps, Stephanie is unceremoniously deflowered by her date. She isn't even aware that the quick, forceful pump means she is no longer a virgin. When she finds this out, she does the only reasonable thing, tells the boy she hates him. I, for one, hate him too. As Stephanie grows up, she falls in love with an older man, who offers her, shall we call it, guidance? This asshole is named David, and he is sort of a stand-in for Cary Grant in Diane's real life. This is only clear to me after reading her memoir, My Life with Carrie, in which the controlling and gaslighting that she endured under Mr. Grant's tutelage becomes apparent. In the movie, Stephanie's eating disorder spirals into a pill addiction, which worsens as she tries to contort herself into what the men in her life want her to be. The relationship ends in divorce, and with that, the girl becomes a woman. From now on in the film, Stephanie is played by Diane Cannon herself. She is all grown up and still searching for a man to value her, as all women are bred to do. Turns out none of them ever will. Stephanie falls for a younger man now that she is older. His name is Michael. He is played by Stephen Meadows, and he is good at sex and hot. He also happens to be the annoying artistic type that plays at sensitivity, but ultimately ends up doing more damage than the outwardly patronizing ones. She clearly loves him, but he resists commitment and any discussion about it. But bear in mind, he reaps all the benefits of immediate access to her, her body, and her inexhaustible care for him. Fucking men. As the relationship, or lack thereof, progresses, Stephanie becomes more desperate for approval, which makes sense given the accumulation of time invested in him he starts standing her up for multiple dates and, in general, keeping her waiting. And as we learned from the hysterical housewife in Death Trap, neglect is as bad as murder. I can also speak from personal experience that there is nothing more soul-crushing than waiting for someone who never shows up, comes through, calls, whatever, and so on. Being last on the list is one of the ultimate hallmarks of the patriarchy. Stephanie discovers Michael is cheating on her one night after another misdate in which she literally sat at home waiting for him for hours. Before she goes to bed, she calls his house. A woman answers. She asks if Michael is there. The woman says, he just stepped out and hangs up the phone. Just to make sure she dialed the right number, keep in mind this is 1990 landlines only, she calls back again. The same woman answers. The next day, a devastated Stephanie argues with Michael on the phone, asking him who that woman was. He completely gaslights her, says she dialed the wrong number, and out of desperation and likely over-exercise and hunger from her now long-standing eating disorder, she apologizes to him for being suspicious. This is a well-worn tale of how a man can steal absolutely everything from you through simple mistreatment. Women were taught to internalize other people's displeasure. I don't care how much you love yourself. If you're a woman, you have a bit of this breeding. When we learn that it's our fault when people don't love us, especially men that we love, we think... No, we know it's our fault. And as an act of self-preservation, we will choose to not believe the proof of their misdeeds, especially if someone is telling us it isn't true, actually lying to our face. It's a very relatable storyline and one that I suspect comes from real and felt pain. Stephanie goes on as usual, working for her father, giving and getting nothing back in her relationship with Michael, and going full tilt into drugs and disordered eating. A montage sequence turns the female experience into a few quick frames of Stephanie piling in the pills, working out on a Stairmaster, and seductively devouring a pastry while smoking weed. Not to be mistaken for the ice cream bar while driving and smoking a cigarette scene that happens later. I love this. A montage really fucking works when the subject matter is something as universal as the ways in which women end up hurting themselves to survive the endless barrage of mistreatment we experience in the world. The next scene is one of the best scenes in any movie I have ever seen. Stephanie, overwhelmed by all aspects of her life but determined to make her relationship work, gets ready in front of her vanity mirror. This is where the Diane Cannon touch is so brilliantly felt stephanie braids her signature wild curly blonde hair into two pigtails and then she tries to wear a scarf over her head the look she is going for is sort of gypsy cool girl artistic but also with a side of biker babe she is wearing a cropped cardigan and jeans with cowboy boots she ties the scarf to her head but it isn't right She then takes a box of tissues and begins to stack individual tissues on top of her head to create height, just like the younger her stuffed tissues into her bra. It's so funny to watch her delicately tie the scarf on top of the tower of tissues that created the perfect casual hair look for her artistic snob of a boyfriend. The look is effortless. The reality is a woman's lifeblood is spilt on effortless looks. She drives over to Michael's house and lets herself in. She reads his new writing that is in his typewriter and notices that the large portrait of the couple on the wall over his desk is covered with sticky notes. This visual representation of how she has been neglected and ignored visibly brings down her spirits until she spots two plane tickets on the bed. She is ecstatic. All her worries and self-doubts disappear instantly. She picks up the tickets and reads the names on them. It's not her name. His is there, but another woman's name is on the second ticket. When Michael finally gets home, well after dark, Stephanie is still there. She is sitting on the floor in the darkened space waiting for him. He switches on the light. She says nothing, but gets up off the floor and heads to the typewriter, where she pulls out the pages of his manuscript and begins to tear them up into itty-bitty pieces. Michael says, "'Hey, Stephanie, what you doing?' She starts screaming at the top of her lungs, You lied! You lied to me! She lunges at him, and he pushes her to the ground. She falls down and begins to pound the ground hard with one hand and screams, You liar! This is a remarkable scene. It is so real, so well acted, and absolutely victorious to watch. It's like having and being a sympathetic witness to my own meltdowns through Stephanie's. And man, I have been there. And many, many other women have too. The brilliance of Diane in this scene is her absolute commitment to going there without any shame and no holds bar emotionality. It's an eruption of pent-up worthlessness that has been placed on her through the failures of the men in her life. I can feel her scream in my throat and the ache of her palm in mine. She continues to scream and pound her hands on the ground. You liar. You lied. You cheated. Michael's meek response is that she is crazy and that she destroyed the only copy he had of his manuscript. Boof fucking who? He says, I want you out of here. During the kerfuffle, her scarf and the Kleenex padding she used to give it extra oomph fell off her head. She's picking up and placing the individual Kleenex tissues on her head, but they are falling off as quickly as she can put them there. She redoubles her efforts while saying, It's my dream, where this guy comes and he, like my prince, takes me on his horse and takes care of me. We take care of each other, and I can tell you're not it. You're definitely not it. When she looks up, Michael is gone. He left her there in his house alone. She spends the entire night piecing back together the torn manuscript. Stephanie goes home. She eats some ice cream and smokes some cigarettes on the way. After a pretty serious binge... When she is feeling her absolute lowest, she calls Michael and apologizes. He doesn't say he is sorry or give any explanation for his infidelity or the lies he has told. She, out of a dark desperation, says she needs to see him so she can understand. He agrees to come by her house at 8 p.m. that night. She double triple checks that he will really come. He promises. She cleans up her house, puts on an oversized pale pink sweater, likely a post-binge go-to look. Her hair is generously poofed and wild. She looks radiant, even after the night before. The doorbell rings, but it isn't Michael, it's her mother. She thinks Stephanie's father is cheating on her. The night goes on and Michael never shows up. Eventually, Stephanie snaps and crawls out of her bedroom window in the rain wearing only a white cotton nightgown. She walks down the road and then she sees a soft glow from a stranger's house on the hill. She climbs on her hands and knees up the muddy hill and pounds on the door of the stranger's house. The husband and wife who live there let her in. Stephanie spends the night in the fetal position in the corner of the living room. The last part of this scene is based on Diane Cannon's real life. After her marriage and subsequent divorce from Cary Grant, a man who made her take LSD as a means of connecting with God, she was a mess. She was seeing a younger man, an artist, who often made her wait and, like her ex-husband, didn't treat her like a whole person. She had been heavily using pills as a means of survival and self-medication. The night she snapped, she had a date with this younger man. He was supposed to pick her up at 7 p.m., 8 9, then finally 11 PM rolled around and he hadn't come or called. She climbed out of her window wearing a white nightgown and went down the street and up the Benedict Canyon hillside, same Beverly Hills Canyon where Sharon Tate lived and died, to a house on the hill. She, like in the film, spent the night there in the fetal position until her friend located her the next day. Her mother quickly institutionalized her, where she got sober and healthy. Although it was and is never that simple. Diane managed to take the pain she had experienced that is so specific to being a woman and infuse every role she played with it. She, as we have already discussed, has the ability to make the obscene mistreatment of women hysterically funny. It's because of her no shame approach to embodying these wounded women that we as viewers are more able to be with our own wounding. Like Diane in real life, Stephanie in the film was also institutionalized post her mental break. When she gets to the hospital, she fights like hell against the doctors and nurses, screaming and throwing things at them. When I first went to rehab, voluntarily, mind you, I was in heavy withdrawal and I was sobbing for hours on end. The nurse came into my room and asked me to stop crying. I found this to be such an outrageous request that I threw a clothing rack at her and as soon as I could walk, I left that place and I hit their golden gate with my car on the way out. Suffice it to say that I found her tantrum upon entry completely reasonable." As Stephanie's withdrawal subsides, she takes part in group therapy that, in my opinion, is more like psych ward therapy than rehab therapy. Thankfully, I have experience with both, so I can parse the difference. She eventually has a breakthrough when she screams her head off to prove that she can manipulate her therapist into thinking she is crazy. The point this proves, in my opinion, is that she can move through the world safely if she can control others' opinions of her. The doctor didn't agree with my assessment, but it is certainly revealing of her state of mind and the naivety the doctor has about what womanhood entails. Later, her mother and father bring her more of her own clothes. This includes Michael's leather jacket. Stephanie cradles and smells the jacket. Later in group, she says she has to see him, meaning Michael. The doctor asks why. She says, because he makes everything in life okay for me. This is the last bit of dialogue before my 59 minutes of film run out. It's an important bit. It reveals the crux of the issue. Women always have to get permission. The more subtle and underground that permission becomes, the more internalized and deeply held our belief that we need it is. And actually, it isn't really a belief, but more of a learned bit of society's rules. So in order for us to, quote unquote, get well, we have to identify and fix all of the male issues that infect our world and rise above everything and everyone that informed our understanding of what living in the world is. That is a tall fucking order but very much in line with the common advice given to women now about asking for what you want and demanding equality. That's a fucking joke and deeply offensive. It places the blame on women for not getting equal pay, for example. If we blame women for our vocal fry, pleasing demeanor, care for others, and so on, we make it okay for men to treat us in a way that demands that we accommodate them to survive. Diane Cannon is a force of nature and I hope this film about her life and simultaneously about all women's lives gets a second chance to be seen. I am ending my Diane discussion on this film, not because it's the last thing she did. It most certainly is not, but because I really think it's the best. There are scenes in this film that are so well acted. I swear they come from my own life and not hers. It's also the last thing Rebecca Schaefer ever did. She died at the hands of a crazed fan named Robert John Bardo, who specifically killed her because of a role she played in the 1989 film Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. Her character was a diversion from the wholesome role that she played on the TV sitcom My Sister Sam, the role she became famous for. This particular fan thought her role in the class struggle was slutty, so he got on a Greyhound bus and found her West Hollywood apartment complex through a private investigator who simply went to the DMV and shot her point blank. She died on July 18, 1989. She was 21 years old. She wasn't the first woman or the first high-profile woman to be stalked, attacked, or killed in Hollywood or even in West Hollywood. But her murder marked the beginning of changes to the laws surrounding stalking. Dorothy Stratton, Playmate and Centerfold was murdered by her ex-boyfriend on August 14, 1980. She was only 20 years old. The film about the horrific murder of this beautiful young talent called Star 80 references the year she died and the fact that she was slated to be Playmate of the Year in 1980. Teresa Saldana was stabbed nearly to death by a fan on March 15, 1982. Thankfully, she survived and was able to make a film starring herself as herself called Victims for Victims, which I highly recommend. Dominique Dunn died November 4, 1982, at age 22 as a result of injuries sustained when she was attacked by her ex-boyfriend on her porch of her West Hollywood home. These stories are important, just as important as Rebecca's. Women are killed by stalkers, known and unknown to them, every fucking day, and it's important to bear witness to that fact. Rebecca's stalker took notes from Teresa Saldana's, which he later admitted to. In some ways, Rebecca was the perfect victim. By that I mean it's easier to get the police on board if you don't know your attacker, and your innocence, as defined by the patriarchy, is unimpeachable. Dominique Dunn's murderer, her ex-boyfriend, served less than three years, while the man that attacked Rebecca died in prison in 2004 after receiving a life sentence in the early 90s. Much was made of the fact that Rebecca had responded to her fan mail, and specifically one of many letters sent to her from Bardo. This fact is emphasized as if her naivety led to her murder... We know that victim blaming happens at every stage of being a female victim, but this seems especially egregious a fact to focus on. Thankfully, Marsha Clark from O.J. Simpson trial fame was the prosecutor on the Rebecca Schaefer murder case and did everything in her power to protect Rebecca's name from that kind of not-so-subtle-she-was-asking-for-it kind of innuendo. The role that Rebecca played in scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills that violated her stalker's requirements for her was Zandra Lipkin. Zandra was Jacqueline Bissett's character, Claire Lipkin's daughter. The film has a star studded cast and a lot of moving parts. If you were to ask me what it's about, I would say dieting and the Santa Ana wins. But IMDb says the widow's houseboy and the divorcee's chauffeur bet on which will bed the other's employer first. The divorcee is Elizabeth Hepburn Saravian, played by Mary Warnoff, ex-wife of Howard Saravian, played brilliantly by Wallace Shawn. Her chauffeur is Frank, played by Ray Sharkey. Elizabeth is having her house fumigated because her cheating of a husband may have infected it. So she and her visiting brother and his new wife, Peter Hepburn, played by Ed Begley Jr., and Tobel, played by Arnita Walker, are spending the weekend at her friend Claire Lipkin's home. Claire's husband has just died, and his ghost, Sidney, played by Paul Murzowski, shows up from time to time. Claire's houseboy, Juan, is played by Robert Beltran. Rosa, the maid, is played by Edith Diaz. And the prepubescent son of Lisbeth, named Willie, is played by Garrett Oliver. But perhaps the best role of the film is Lisbeth's right-hand man, Dr. Mo Vandekamp, resident thinologist, played by Paul Bartel. The costumes and set deck put this film in its own category of outrageously awesome visual spectacles. The costumer was Donna Granada. Donna also designed the costumes for the 1999 Sharon Stone film, Gloria, the slutty goddess thing she had down pat. The set deck was done by Bob Kensinger, and the production designer was Alec Travalos. Jacqueline Bisset had her own hair and makeup person, Edward Turns. This is fairly common for big stars. Other hair and makeup people included Stephen Frank on hair, Jason Sikka as the key hairstylist, Elizabeth Dahl on makeup, and Cynthia Zanetti as the key makeup artist. The basic premise of the film is wealthy women, one divorced, one widowed, and one a teenage daughter, sledding around the house with the help. As previously mentioned, the Santa Anas play a large role in the general vibe and fervor of said liaisons, and seems to spurn a lot of self-hatred amongst the group. Like in one scene where Howard, Lisbeth's ex-husband, returns in the middle of the night, and after making a show of himself sobbing on the staircase, he apologizes and says, It's these damn Santa Annas. I hate myself! It's an amazing scene hysterically funny and always topical in Los Angeles in any year, decade, etc., etc. The film ends with both Juan and Frank having sex over their lost bet. Juan and Mrs. Sarabian fall in love for real. Dr. Thinologist convinces Xandra to go on a hunger mission in Africa with him, where he clearly plans to maul and rape her in their shared tent. Aunt Tobel and Rosa, the maid, sleep with Willie. Frank slept with everyone, including Zandra, the teenage daughter played by Rebecca Schaefer. The first scene starring Rebecca as Zandra I'm going to talk about is when the whole group is eating brunch outside by the pool. The event is planned for Kelly, a writer for Lifestyle magazine, who is there to interview Claire. This could potentially lead to her comeback. Claire is wearing a blonde bob wig with a white ruffled dress and giant pearl earrings that emphasize the icy hue of the blonde wig hair. Ash begins to rain down on them. Elizabeth asks, what are these black flecks everywhere? Willie answers, oh, they are ashes from the fire. Xandra says, oh, my friend Mimi's house burnt down, but they have two others in Malibu, so, and she shrugs. She is looking remarkably daring as she delivers this pat dismissal of firepower with her dark curled locks, cherry red lips, and an adorable white dress and hat. She is like some kind of youth oozing Betty Boop in this scene. Kelly, the writer for Lifestyle Magazine, then goes on to say that there are 17 fires burning right now. Xandra woke up with Frank, the chauffeur, in the scene just prior to brunch. It was that so-called love scene that enraged Rebecca's stalker enough to kill her. I personally think that's nonsense. The idea that anything she did or didn't do on screen or in real life triggering him seems like a counterproductive talking point to me. 2020 even suggested that innocent types like Rebecca are frequently targeted by stalkers. My guess is that all types of women are targeted by stalkers, but the public, the media, and most importantly, the justice system only takes notice of the so-called innocent ones, the good victims. It is that insanity that adds extra oomph to Rebecca's performance in class struggle. Her complete comfort in her own skin in life, and her ability to play a different girl, a more grown-up, dangerous one on screen, was her last act, and I think it should be celebrated. I would fuck the help too if I were Zandra. The last scene of Rebecca's I'm going to highlight is one in which Zandra, Rebecca's character, and resident thinologist Dr. Mo Vandykamp, are lounging around by the pool. Zandra is standing up fixing herself a drink while the doctor leers disgustingly at her from a lounge chair. She is wearing a red polka dot bikini with matching red lips and wet, slick back hair. She looks unbelievably sexy, yet innocent, like Brenda Walsh at the beach with Dylan on 90210 a few years later. They both have that dark hair-pale skin combo that feels exotic in Southern California, especially when worn with a red bikini and matching red lipstick. Sandra says to the doctor through boo-hoo style sobs, "'Mo, my life is so dumb. And what have I got to show for it?' Dr. Mo says, "'You're still very young. You've barely just turned 17.' She says, "'Oh, Mo, I'm a coward. My idea of taking a risk is losing my birth control pills or shopping at Saks without a sale. I want to live, but I don't know how.' Then she sobs loudly and says, "'I hate myself.' another example of the Santa Ana-fueled self-hatred that only Southern Californians feel. It is at this point that Dr. Mo sells the impressionable young teen on the Africa for hunger trip, where they will have to share a tent and so on. But more important than the rapey thenologist's plan for the nubile young teen is Rebecca's handling of this scene. Xandra's affect is played perfectly by Rebecca. She hits the high notes of her sobs like she is at the fucking opera. My listeners likely know by now that I absolutely delight in feminine expressions of rage, sadness, or anything akin to hysteria, as I believe it's well-deserved and just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the emotions stirring within the female psyche. Rebecca certainly understood the beauty of a woman sobbing in a bikini. Her portrayal of Xandra should be remembered as a victorious thing, not a trigger for a fragile male ego. The first law that went into effect as a result of Rebecca's murder and the previously mentioned stalking victims was the 1990 California State Law 646.9. That law criminalized the act of maliciously and repeatedly following or harassing someone, resulting in a credible threat or fear of death or injury. I'm paraphrasing. The Driver's Privacy Protection Act is another anti-stalking law that went into effect after Rebecca's murder. Both Teresa Saldana's attacker and Rebecca Schaefer's obtained their addresses through the DMV via a PI. It is now illegal for the DMV to give out your personal information. That law was enacted in 1994. The Los Angeles Police Department created the Threat Management Unit in 1990 after Rebecca's murder, specifically for high-profile stalking victims. It was meant to be a resource for celebrities, but ended up being a model for how other departments and companies would deal with stalking for decades to come. It's important to note that even after these and many other subsequent changes, there are still very few options if you're being stalked. One of your only resources is a restraining order, which by its very nature requires that your address be reported to your stalker so he knows where to stay away from. If your stalker already knows where you live, this makes sense, but obviously, access to your address is one of the main things you want to hide from a stalker. Even if you do have a restraining order, you could end up dead in a second. The police can't help a dead body. In the case of Dominique Dunn, her friend called the police, but because of jurisdiction issues and the lack of a centralized dispatch, there was no 911 in 1982. They didn't arrive in time to prevent injuries that ultimately proved to be fatal. The number of stories I have heard about an ex showing up and throwing a friend of a friend off the porch or simply shooting her is never-ending. I myself have dealt with this issue over the course of my life multiple times. There are almost no effective resources. Next week... On Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy, I will be moving from feature film into music videos filmed like movies. Specifically, the two 1993 music videos starring Alicia Silverstone Aerosmith's Cryin' and Crazy. This episode is not about Aerosmith. It's about Alicia and her earth-shattering effect on me and the culture and her continued influence on teen girls everywhere through her iconic role as Cher in the 1995 film Clueless. Please follow the podcast on Instagram at window dressing Podcast and consider supporting this effort financially with a donation through Spotify. Thank you for listening. I'm Madeline Jane Obel.